With over 7 billion people in the world, we all have one thing in common. Every day, we all get dressed. Welcome to Dressed, the history of fashion, a podcast where we explore the who, what, when of why we wear. We are fashion historians and your hosts, April Callahan and Cassidy Zachary. Welcome. Today's episode is very exciting because, April, we have the distinctive pleasure of welcoming Dr. Colleen Darnell to the show. Colleen is an Egyptologist, which is not a job title you hear every day. She is the author of six books and dozens of articles about ancient Egypt on topics that include military history, literature, religion, and Egyptian revival activities. Her book, Imagining the Past, Historical Fiction in New Kingdom Egypt, provided the first analysis of a genre of quote-unquote historical fiction written in ancient Egypt between circa 1275 and 1100 BCE. And Dr. Darnell has also led um, archaeological expeditions in Egypt and curated museum exhibitions, including Echoes of Egypt, Conjuring the Land of the Pharaohs. And Cassidy and I actually discovered you on Instagram, um, where you have two accounts, the first of which is at the Daily Hieroglyph, where she shares um, her extensive knowledge on ancient, ancient Egyptian hieroglyphs. And the second um, Instagram, I think, is going to be quite intriguing to any of our listeners Please follow Colleen at Vintage underscore Egyptologist. Absolutely. Because this documents her scholastic adventures in high style. And we mean high style um, because Colleen and her husband, John Darnell, they dress exclusively in vintage clothing with a particular focus on the 1920s. And not only does Colleen exclusively wear vintage in her everyday life, she even can be found wearing it while excavating Egyptian tombs. This is a commitment we can all appreciate on dress. (laughs) Colleen, we are thrilled to have you with us today. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for having me. It's a real honor. Yeah, we are very excited because Egypt is not a subject we have touched on this season of dress. And I admit, other than the general basics, this is not a subject that I know that much about, other than what Hollywood has romanticized for me since I was a small child in the Mummy series. (laughs) Um, So I'm thrilled to get to explore this topic with you today. And let's be honest, this is only going to be a small glimpse. When we say ancient Egypt, we are talking about a time span of over 3,000 years. It's a lot of dresses. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But before we dig into this topic, get it? Um, puns. We love puns. <laughs> can you tell us a little bit about how you became an Egyptologist? Um, kind of what sparked your interest and your academic pursuits into studying, you know, ancient cultures. And I, you never know. This episode address might um, inspire a few budding Egyptologists themselves out there. That that would be really great. So I think for me, ancient Egypt was complete passion since I was a small child. So I always wanted to be an Egyptologist, but it was really wonderful to be able to make a career out of it because that isn't always what happens in the field. So I studied at Yale University, received my PhD in Egyptology, and I've been teaching Egyptology and art history ever since. And then in the breaks, typically in between semesters, going on archaeological expeditions in Egypt. Oh, wow. And as we mentioned in the intro, you have a love for 1920s fashion, so much that is a main staple of your wardrobe. You're wearing a fabulous lace and pink silk ensemble today. Can you tell us a little bit about how you came to collect and wear vintage fashion? Thanks to Instagram, I have now become aware of this incredibly large 
um, international community of people, men and women, who live and breathe fashion history such as yourself. It really is a lifestyle choice. So can you talk a little bit more about that? Oh, of course. This is fashion for me is a very much a collaboration with my husband, John. And we often coordinate our vintage and really love the act of shopping and mm-hmm. assembling a wardrobe and then going out to events and even just a museum to, to put something on that mm-hmm. has that connection with the past. And then you're looking at paintings or statues and you notice all these details of the clothing and, and you're wearing historical fashion yourself. Mm-hmm. And so that's, I think, what's so intriguing about the connection between the academic study of history, mm-hmm. particularly art history, and then dressing in vintage fashion is it mm-hmm. really makes it all come alive. Mm -hmm. So that's a lot of fun. And out in the field, a lot of times, joppers, cottons, linens, those are the most practical things to wear in addition to pith helmets because they're so light. They're designed Mm -hmm. to be in a really hot climate. Mm -hmm. And in, in the field... I tend to avoid the really old 1920s, 1930s and do mm-hmm. more of the later fashion with, with some mixed in, but mm-hmm. no vintage is harmed during the course of <laughs> archaeological expeditions. <laughs> Can you talk a little bit about where you source and collect your vintage from? Is it all over? It really is all mm-hmm. over. So there's amazing vendors here in New York City, Wildfell mm-hmm. Hall, Noble Vintage Clothier. They come to a lot of events. And so it's fun to see the clothes in person. I think that's so important, particularly mm-hmm. when starting a vintage collection. It's just go everywhere, look at it, get a mm-hmm. sense of how it feels and fits. And visiting stores around and obviously Instagram and Etsy, the internet in general is such an amazing source. Yeah. I just had this revelation all of a sudden. So there's there's kind of a relationship between your your hunt for the ancient and your hunt for your vintage. They kind of probably fulfill that same interest. Oh, absolutely. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's all about understanding how things work, understanding what a particular style was, what it meant. And so analyzing, I think, is the dress 1926? Is the dress 1929? Is it 1932? You're looking for the same clues as trying to date a hieroglyphic inscription. Mm -hmm. So down to the label. (laughs) That's what hieroglyphs are. They're labels often to scene. So Mm -hmm. I think the, the hunt for vintage is exactly that. It can be this academic and fun pursuit Mm -hmm. because that's what I think studying hieroglyphs is. Um, So the discovery of King Tut's nearly intact tomb in 1922, of course, as we all know, received international press coverage, um, and it caused a sensation. And people around the world were, like, captivated by this, reading all the news every single day. Can you tell us a little bit more about this discovery, why it was important to the field of Egyptology, but also the general public? Why was the general public so fascinated? That's a really great question. And the discovery of the tomb of Tutankhamun is without a doubt one of the most important archaeological discoveries ever made in Egypt because we learned so much about what would have been contained within a tomb. We could guess based on various paintings, decoration in the Valley of the Kings, but we couldn't get a sense of exactly how it all fit together. And although Tutankhamun's tomb might not have necessarily been representative. He had a fairly short reign in comparison to Mm -hmm. many of the famous kings of the New Kingdom, but it was all there, which was remarkable. Mm -hmm. And there's some really interesting religious texts, even on his shrines, that aren't attested in any other tomb. So that was key to our knowledge. And then because this is the age of mass media in the 1920s, 
it spreads like wildfire mm-hmm. and catches on for everything from King Tut lemons as oh, yeah. advertising <laughs> in the 1920s to jazz age songs. But what I think even more fascinating about looking at Egyptomania in the 1920s is that it already starts prior to the discovery of the tomb of Tutankhamun. There's a surprising amount of Victorian and Edwardian Egyptomania not always as accurate. They're not really looking as much at the sources, although mm-hmm. one can't say 1920s Egyptomania is always accurate either. Mm-hmm. And even famous Egyptomania icons like Grauman's Egyptian Theater mm-hmm. was constructed in 1922 before the tomb was discovered in November. So it's almost this amazing coming together of different mm-hmm. historical events where Egypt is very much part of the imagination, the discovery Mm -hmm. of Nefertiti's bust in 1912, the excavations at Amarna, Mm -hmm. that already had really brought to the fore Egyptian Mm -hmm. iconography interest in ancient Egypt. Mm -hmm. And then to have this spectacular gold mask and well-preserved tomb Mm -hmm. in 1922 makes it explode. Yeah. And on the show, we speak a lot to the role that fashion plays in reflecting the happenings of any given era. And we've spoken about how it proceeds in many ways and anticipates things. So that's perhaps not as surprising. Um, And this discovery proves no exception. So it's not surprising that fashion responds immediately. And the Cheney Silk Company is just one example of a textile firm that sent a designer directly to Egypt immediately to study the artifacts in person. So the firm of Lefkowitz and Potofsky even went as far as to offer $100,000 to the excavation team directly for the exclusive style rights of the tomb findings. So, <laughs> and I have to say, when you start looking at this stuff, some of it's better than others, the more direct. <laughs> definitely, <Yeah>. definitely. <laughs> um, so it's not long before the market's inundated in all things Egypt, from the mass-produced scarf to the upper echelons of the made-to-order haute couture. I would love to know if you have any of these pieces in your collection, and if so, can you speak to them a bit? I do have several Egyptian revival pieces. Having studied Egyptomania, Mm -hmm. it's even more fun to collect it because you can kind of see how it all fits in. So I have a couple pre-1920s Egyptian revival pieces, uh, brooches that incorporate scarabs and, Mm -hmm. and lotus motifs, which I really enjoy wearing. Mm -hmm. And then from the 1920s, probably my favorite piece is a black velvet opera coat with silver beads. (laughs) That's swoony. (laughs) (laughs) With with silver beads that are in the design of pseudo hieroglyphs. Mm -hmm. They don't actually say anything. Uh, Sphinxes and Mm -hmm. also Egyptian royal heads uh, wearing the, the typical Nimi's headdress, just like we would see on Tutankhamun. So those pieces are really fun to incorporate. And it's interesting then how many gold and blue and red designs get labeled as Egyptian revival Mm -hmm. because it does evoke the past without being kind of a direct copy. Mm -hmm. And I think some of those inspirational designs can be really interesting. Yeah, versus the literal interpretations of them, the literal copying of the design onto a scarf. (laughs) Exactly. There's a lot of that, particularly Uh mid-century, where it is the head of Nefertiti on on an object. And and that's really fun as well. But I I like the the subtle. More nuanced, yeah. Egyptian revival. Mm So there was a lot of press coverage, um, as we've mentioned, about this. And uh, journalists for the New York Times, under the headline, Pharaonic Styles Set New Fashions, quoted a West End London dressmaker in a 1923 article saying, quote, 
Every well-dressed woman will be wearing evening gowns designed after ancient Egyptian models. Lord Canaveron's discoveries in Egypt had a tremendous effect upon the styles. Tutankhamun overcoats, suits, hats, along with ancient Egyptian lines, but with a touch of modern smartness. <laughs> and they goes on to say, Egyptian headdresses, scarabs, pearls have increased in demand. Practically all the fashionable jewelers are displaying ancient styles of jewelry. And which is exactly what 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 you just mentioned, and and really we could probably spend an entire podcast talking about only Egyptian revival fashions of the twenties and Egyptomania, but I think Cass and I also would love to touch back on the rich culture of dress that inspired them in the first place, Absolutely. Um, ancient Egypt. So I'm hoping that we can speak about this uh, a bit further after a word from our sponsors. Welcome back, Dress Detective Hats On, or Dress Detective Cloches, for <laughs> We are about to take a giant leap from the 1920s all the way back to 3000 BCE. So let's start with the very basics, because it would appear to me that for over 3000 years, there was one unchanging staple of Egyptian men and women's wardrobe, and that was linen. It would appear that linen and linen alone remained the foundation of Egyptian dress across the social strata for thousands of years. So can you speak to the cultural significance of this fabric um, to the history of Egyptian dress? So you're absolutely right. Linen is the foundational material for ancient Egyptian garments. And we can push that date back to 5000 BCE, where we have the first piece of linen attested in an archaeological context. Wow. So even further back, which is incredible. And then that remained the staple all the way through the Roman period. Mm-hmm. And cotton, which we obviously associate so strongly with Egypt today, was only introduced probably in the first century CE. So it's a relative latecomer. And it's interesting as well that the Egyptians did have wool and mm-hmm. woolen garments. They're clearly not nearly as significant as linen because most of the year it's pretty warm, so you wouldn't need wool. But in a desert environment, it can't get quite cold at night. And a Greek historian who visited Egypt roughly 450 BCE said that the Egyptians considered wool impure. And we don't actually have confirmation of that. So there's this perception that the Egyptians intentionally avoided wool that probably isn't true. Mm -hmm. On the flip side, priests do seem to have been intentionally clad only in white linen. So there might be a little kernel of truth, but it's so interesting looking at 5,000 years of Egyptian Mm -hmm. history that what is a commonly read source now might not be the best source in terms of looking at ancient Egyptian clothing traditions. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And I'm curious, do they, because you do associate white linen with Egyptians, was there any sort of dyeing of that linen ever? Was that incorporated into the, what they wore? Most of the linens we have would have been mm-hmm. white or mm-hmm. off-white or possibly even a, a browner mm-hmm. tone. Mm-hmm. And they did use other dyed tapestries mm-hmm. uh, and fragments that they would assemble into a larger textile. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Um, so Egyptian culture was very much hierarchical, if I am correct. And at the top, you have the most wealthy, the powerful, um, who are adorning themselves in jewels and the finest qualities of linens. And then you also have priests who had their own distinctive garments, which sometimes um, included animal hides, which I think we'll get to in a little bit. Um, and then the lower classes um, were wearing 
more simple types of garments. Um, can you speak a bit to the class distinctions in ancient Egypt and the role that clothing specifically played in manifesting these distinctions? Um, you know, was this intentional? You know, in, in Europe, of course, in Western fashion, there is a long, long history. history. Of, yes. Sanctuary yes. <laughs> <laughs> laws, anyone? <laughs> so Egypt is Interesting, because we don't have evidence of any sumptuary laws. So it seems that most of the time, how you dressed depended on what you were doing. So obviously, the wealthy, the nobility, the royal family, they could afford the finest linen. And some mm -hmm. of the fine linen in the tomb of Tutankhamun is almost like gauze. It's so incredibly light and fine. And mm -hmm. they, they even talk about royal linen as the highest quality that there mm -hmm. was. And then you go down from there. So when we see tomb scenes, often the tomb owner is wearing the most elaborate garment because he is being honored, as well as his wife often, mm -hmm. as the deceased couple that are being venerated in the funerary cult. And then the people working in the fields are wearing clothing appropriate to mm -hmm. that sort of work. And it's weird, too, because in tomb scenes, the tomb owner and his wife and sometimes a child will be on a papyrus boat in the marshes, both fowling and fishing. And they're wearing these incredibly elaborate garments, which you wouldn't have actually worn if you were simply fowling and fishing. But they're doing that to signal that this is in a ritual festival context. Ah. So we have to be really careful when we look at the <laughs> tomb scenes that what they might be wearing is intentionally because that's not what you normally wear. And they're trying to signal something significant precisely through their choice of clothing. And with priests having a particular garb, that's also really interesting because there wasn't before the New Kingdom a caste, a class of priests. Hmm. Many people would have rotated for a couple months out of the year in the priesthood. Oh, wow. So those sorts of special yeah. garments and ritual purity, a lot more people would have had familiarity with mm -hmm. than we tend to associate simply looking back in ancient Egypt as this monolithic civilization. Mm -hmm. So back to the most wealthy of Egyptians, um, when you really look at images of these um, men and women, it becomes immediately clear that they have mastered the art of artifice. And it's surprisingly androgynous in many ways. Um, men and women both wore dark colored wigs that made from human hair, for instance. They mm -hmm. both rimmed their eyes in coal, and both sexes bedecked themselves in finery from their head to their toes. So can you speak to this very similar approach to dressing? It's interesting when we look at men and women's garments. Mm -hmm. There are specific clothes for each gender. So mm -hmm. if we go back, say, to the time of the pyramids, 2500 BCE, Men are typically shown in a starched kilt, and they really stick out. So yeah. it looks in two dimensions. You think, that can't possibly have been what it looked like. And then you look at a statue, and it really is sticking out because of this incredibly strong starching. And then they would typically be bare-chested. Now, we don't know how much men always walked around bare-chested in the mm -hmm. Old Kingdom, but you get that sense from the pictorial mm -hmm. record, whether or not that's true. And women of the Old Kingdom wore sheath dresses, and mm -hmm. that continues through the Middle Kingdom. And it's really about 1500 BCE, and then especially around the time of Ramses II, about mm -hmm. 1250 BCE, where clothing gets much more elaborate. And both men and women are wearing layers of diaphanous, pleated linen garments that are often multiple kilts, 
pointed, flouncy sleeves. Mm -hmm. And the style of clothing is very similar, especially then Mm -hmm. for men and women. And when we see the androgyny the most Mm -hmm. is the reign of Tutankhamun's father, Akhenaten, where both in his physical appearance within the pictorial evidence, as well as his clothing, he is sometimes virtually indistinguishable from Nefertiti, his wife. So both the body shape and the clothing Mm -hmm. indicates that there's something interesting going on with gender differentiation Mm -hmm. during his reign. But yes, I think to a modern observer, it would be very unusual to step back 3,000 years ago. But for them, this was completely typical. And skipping forward just one generation in the future from what you were just talking about, you know, there are many fantastic images of King Tutankhamun and his wife, um, but there's one in particular that really grabbed Cassidy and I's uh, attention. Um, The couple's facing each other. He's seated. She has his hand on his shoulder, um, and they both have on their pleated linen garments, and they're wearing the wide beaded uh, necklaces known as pectorals. And on top of their heads are these incredibly rich decorated gold headdresses. And this is obviously, quite obviously, before <laughs> photography. <laughs> um, so we should probably we should probably assume that there might have been some liberties taken with the uh, depictions of these garments. But um, are there extant pieces that kind of attest to this level of grandeur in, in the imagery? So that that's a great image to choose on the back of one of the most elaborately decorated thrones of Tutankhamun. And what's especially fun about that image is that it's in color. Yes. So you can see how they've chosen all these different precious stones and silver for the garments to make it pop. Uh, and obviously gold for the headdress. And most of the throne is covered in gold. It's interesting that in ancient Egypt, we see so many different crowns. Mm. And yet we haven't found a piece of one that we can definitively say this is a piece of an ancient Egyptian crown. So, for example, in Tutankhamun's tomb, there were not the crowns buried with him. And that could have been because then the crowns were bequeathed to the next ruler who Mm -hmm. then had to wear them, much like the crown jewels of England. Mm -hmm. So that could be one of the reasons why we don't have that attested. I think there are enough depictions of very elaborate metal vessels, say, where we know that they would almost sculpt these landscapes even, in these ritual vessels. And I think we could probably apply the same understanding to Tutankhamun and Anxanamun's very elaborate gold headpieces. So I don't think there's any reason that the Egyptians couldn't have made that. So it might be perhaps a little bigger, perhaps a little more ornate than reality, Mm -hmm. but it could very well be a pretty accurate representation of what they would have worn. I mean, spectacular. Yeah. <laughs> that word comes to mind. And speaking of spectacular and surviving garments, I have seen more than one example of the exquisite beaded net dresses in imagery from the period. And these dresses are thought to be depicted uh, with a lozenge-type patterning meant to represent the beadwork. So the Museum of Fine Arts Boston has an early surviving example of one of these garments, and it was apparently found in pieces, which I find this incredibly fascinating. 7,000 individual beads were in pieces, and somebody hand painstakingly, probably multiple somebodies, put back these pieces, <laughs> piece by piece. And um, these dresses resemble net in that they are basically see-through. And although they may have been worn over a linen dress, that too would have been relatively sheer. So for me, that begs the question, what was the Egyptians' relationship to the naked body? And it would appear to me that it was very much celebrated, or at the very least, not something to be hidden. That is exactly correct. And we have abundant evidence from the ancient Egyptians that they did not view 
nudity or semi-sheer garments as at all shocking. Mm -hmm. And just to give you a great example, because of the connection with these net dresses, there's a story that we have attested in a papyrus, roughly 1600 BCE, describing things that happened almost a thousand years earlier during the reign of a king named Snofru. And King Snofru seems to be a fairly jolly fellow, and he was bored one day. So a member of his court said, well, we're going to get 20 really beautiful women with these elaborate hairstyles, and they're going to row you around in your lake, and that will cheer you up some. (laughs) (laughs) So they're described as being um, beautiful of bosom and having these elaborate wigs on their heads, these braided locks, and they're dressed in nets. And we don't know if that refers to a netted dress, Mm -hmm. like one of those net beaded net Mm -hmm. dresses, or if these are actual fishing nets that they've cut up and draped over the women's bodies. But it specifically says that they're wearing these nets, either fish nets or beaded net dresses without anything else underneath. So there is at least one example in literature (laughs) where, yes, indeed, that's all they were wearing. And it's not, you really get this sense, even from the love poetry, Mm -hmm. there's an example where a woman goes into the Nile wearing one of these white linen garments, which was already pretty see-through, and she comes out of the water holding a fish, a tilapia, which has this great uh, regenerative symbolism in ancient Egypt. So we can imagine how sheer the dress would have become Mm -hmm. when she emerged from the water. Mm -hmm. And this was an acceptable image in in ancient Egypt. And when you say love poetry, what are you specifically referring to? So in the time of Ramses II, about Mm -hmm. 1250 BCE, we have a corpus of love poetry. It's Mm -hmm. it's absolutely beautiful. And John has done some of the most amazing translations of what these texts mean and the hidden message. And there's one that mentions a woman who is dressed like a man going out to trap birds. And the bird smells of incense. And when she captures this bird that smells of incense, she asks her lover if he will help her release the bird. And the riddle of the poem is that the bird is her own soul. Wow. That's some deep stuff. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, now you've mentioned, I think a couple of times, women acting in men's roles. And correct me if I'm wrong, but there was at least one female pharaoh. Is that correct? There was. There were, in fact, a number during Egyptian history, three major ones in the pharaonic period up until Cleopatra VII, the final uh, Ptolemaic ruler of Egypt who commits suicide in 30 BCE rather than being dragged back in chains to Rome. The most famous and appropriate uh, for the Metropolitan Museum of Art in New York is the female pharaoh Hatshepsut. And she's fascinating because in her art, she starts out very obviously feminine. So she has a female body. She is wearing a dress. She is wearing a crown appropriate to a queen because she was the wife of the previous pharaoh. And when her husband dies, his successor is still quite young. And after about seven years of rule, she becomes co-king with this young pharaoh, Thutmose III. And in her art, she transitions from this female queen becoming more androgynous, having pink skin, because women traditionally had yellow skin, men had red skin. So she's pink to show that she's kind of this in-between role. And she starts to have a less feminized body 
and start wearing male clothing. So she'll be not wearing anything up top, a male kilt on, but still have a fairly feminine face. And then in her her 2D representations, having this indeterminate skin tone. And by the end of her reign, she's depicted fully masculine, where she's almost indistinguishable from her co-king, Tutmose III. So you can see how she uses the art to solidify her power. Because for the Egyptians, the king was always male. Mm -hmm. The queen could be very significant. Even in foreign policy, we know the queens wrote letters to other courts and probably were quite involved in the decision-making. But it's still a gender-based role. Mm -hmm. So to see her take on the role of king and then have to use clothing, skin tone, artistic representation Mm -hmm. to try to harmonize the idea of being a female king. Yeah. Including wearing a beard in a couple of depictions of her? Am I am I wrong about this? That's always a point of contention. Okay. And it's interesting. <laughs> now I'm the one spreading the mix. <laughs> so when she wears the false beard, and it was always a false beard. So even when the male kings wear them, you can see the strap that's attaching them from the chin onto the head. So when she is fully male she can wear the beard because that was expected of a male king. So I don't think that represents evidence that she went that far. And we have no evidence what she actually wore day to day. And there's even an earlier female king named Sobek Nafru. And the one depiction we have of her, which is a statue, she's wearing a dress, but then has a male kilt tied over it. Mm-hmm. And I think that might be a good clue as to what Hatshepsut probably wore day to day is that she maintained her feminine dress, but then maybe added male regalia to it. But that that's just a guess. Mm-hmm. I also read another, you mentioned silver earlier, and I read a great article um, talking about jewelry worn by the upper classes. And I was surprised to learn that at the time, silver was more valuable than gold at the time um, because it was rarer, I guess. Um, and, and included in this jewelry were often all different kinds of jewels, um, semi-precious stones, including lapis lazuli, red and green jasper, quartz, turquoise. But almost always these jewels were, or, or semi-precious stones were used to depict a motif of some mm-hmm. kind. Um, so could you speak to the role and the symbolism of these particular motifs in in, in jewelries, as well as in um, some of the elaborate collars and headdresses? Like what role did imagery of this sort play in dress? That's a great question. And it is so crucial when looking at ancient Egyptian art that so much of it is supposed to be red. So when you see a piece of ancient Egyptian jewelry, there is an excellent chance that you're actually looking at a word or at the very least an apotropaic symbol. So the broad colors that we see often rendered in faience and other jewels are mimicking flowers and floral elements and and petals, things like that. And those would have been worn, particularly during these big festivals. And during funerary banquets, actual floral collars would be worn. We have some of those that were probably worn during the funeral of Tutankhamun in the Valley of the Kings. So it's really neat to see this interplay between a natural Mm -hmm. material, a flower, and then how that becomes almost fossilized in the stones for which they're reproducing it. A lot of jewelry, for example, this amazing set of jewels of a Middle Kingdom princess, roughly 1900 BCE, named Sat Hathor Unit. And her jewels were found virtually intact. They're in the Metropolitan Museum. 
And a lot of her necklaces say something. It's literally a sentence. So one of them says, all life, prosperity, and health. And it just looks like symbols if you don't know the hieroglyphs, but it's actually a message. Or she have another pectoral that has the name of a king and shows him smiting a foreign ruler. And all of the little cloisonne details are actually hieroglyphs. So every time you see a work of ancient Egyptian jewelry, there's always some sort of additional meaning, whether it's writing or symbolism. Wow, that's really cool. I had yeah, no idea that's about really that. That's really interesting. <laughs> And could you actually speak to the influence of foreign dress on Egyptian clothing? Because it would be a mistake to assume that Egyptian dress remained largely unchanged for thousands and thousands of years. And I feel like that's kind of what most general dress histories would suggest. Were there changes in dress of the ancient Egyptians that might even suggest like a sort of fashion? That's a great question. And I think the best answer lies in how people dress versus how God's dress. Mm. And it's interesting that God's, for example, in the New Kingdom, again, let's say roughly 1250 BCE, God's wear traditional clothes exclusively. Mm -hmm. So goddesses are wearing those sheath dresses with straps that go all the way back to the Old Kingdom. Whereas human women of the time would have been wearing those very flouncy, white linen ensembles. Mm -hmm. So we have evidence, for example, in the tomb of Ramses II's great wife, Nefertari, where Nefertari is wearing these flouncy, in-fashion clothes, and she's offering to a goddess whose style is 2,000 years old. And I think that's kind of the fun aspect of mm -hmm. vintage fashion, one could say, yeah. in ancient Egypt. <laughs> <laughs> and we know that secondhand clothes were often bought up to then use as mummy wrappings. So oh, old clothes continued to have a life uh -huh. in ancient Egypt. So we could see some of the fashion change. Mm -hmm. And then we could also see this acknowledgement of even millennia old styles mm -hmm. because of the divine world. And the only exception to that is during the reign of Akhenaten, Tutankhamun's father, where goddesses are suddenly wearing modern fashion of mm -hmm. the day. Mm -hmm. And there are statues in the tomb of Tutankhamun where the goddesses guarding his internal organs mm -hmm. are wearing dress that would have been fashionable in his lifetime as opposed to something going back over a thousand years. And at one point, I think um, in our earlier conversations, you had talked about an influence of the Greeks that introduced new styles into the Egyptians. Is that something that happened at some point? They were influential on Egyptian style. That's an interesting thing to think about, that there are different styles that start to come to the fore. Mm -hmm. And it's actually really a question of whether it's a continuation of Egyptian styles and mm -hmm. we're simply seeing native traditions change and develop over time, kind mm -hmm. of like we saw in the first 3,000 years of Egyptian history, mm -hmm. and how much new styles would have been introduced. So, for example, Cleopatra VII, she was the descendant of a Greek general. Mm -hmm. So she was 100% Greek as far as we can tell. There might have been some intermarriage into the family, but traditionally we, we think of her as a Greek ruler of Egypt. So what did she wear? Because in representations on Egyptian temples, she's wearing standard Egyptian clothing. So I think mm -hmm. it's really interesting to think about mm -hmm. how much we don't know about what was fashionable dress mm -hmm. when foreign rulers conquer Egypt and are in charge. 
Oh, yeah. This is great because I've never really thought about this influence of foreign dress in Egypt. Um, And it really brings up a good point about the relationship between not only clothing and ethnic identity, but also, too, if she was a quote-unquote Greek foreign ruler of Egypt, was she using traditional forms of dress to kind of as, a, as almost like an offering to the people or as a way to reach out to the Egyptian people. Um, but I think you have a story about a certain Nubian prince that might get into this. I do. Uh, <laughs> his name is Hekanefer, and he was a contemporary of Tutankhamun. He probably met Tutankhamun if the pictorial evidence is to be believed. And Hekanefer, as a Nubian prince, is depicted in the tomb of a man named Hui, who was the viceroy, the ruler of Nubia for the Egyptian administration, because Nubia at that time was a colony of Egypt, but they also incorporated local rulers into the administration, and Hekanefer was one of them. So in the tomb of Hui, the Nubian prince Hekanefer is depicted wearing Egyptian white linen clothing with then Nubian leather garments over his Egyptian garments. And some Egyptologists have said they're making him dress like a barbarian. And I think that's totally unfair because when Hekanefer is wearing both Egyptian clothing and markers of his status as a Nubian prince, he might very well have intended, and I think this is more likely, to say, hey guys, I outrank you. I'm a Nubian prince and I'm expressing this through my clothing. So I think we have to be really careful when interpreting evidence 3,000 years old. Right. Are we putting our modern conceptions Mm -hmm. or are we trying to understand what they're telling Mm -hmm. us with their clothing? And in the 1960s, a Yale University mission found Hekanefer's tomb in Nubia. So we not only have the picture of him in the tomb of Hui, but we have his own tomb. And in his tomb, he's shown dressed entirely like an Egyptian. And he has Egyptian funerary texts because he probably believed in Egyptian funerary religion, as did many Nubians of the time, based on our evidence. So I think it's so cool to see, okay, in his tomb, he's following Egyptian afterlife beliefs, so he's going to be wearing white linen, just like an Egyptian. But when he appears in someone else's tomb as a Nubian administrator, Mm -hmm. he's going to express both halves of his identity. That's fascinating. (laughs) And more on these fascinating intersections in the history of dress after a word from our sponsors. Welcome back. We're actually nearing the end of our time together, and I would like to turn our attention to the end of life, if we could, and the clothing worn by people tasked with ensuring one's safe passage from this life to the next. Um, I find the dress of particularly interesting. Um, Sometimes you see them depicted wearing animal skins, Mm -hmm. um, perhaps cheetah, maybe leopard um, across the chest, um, and and these very fascinating cones of wax on their head. And apparently this was designed to gradually melt throughout the day or over the course of a banquet. Um, But could you talk about um, the wearing of animal skins in ancient Egypt? Definitely. The leopard skin is the marker of the Sem priest. So the Sem, that's the title in ancient Egyptian hieroglyphs. And the Sem priest was unbelievably important because he was the person who performed the opening of the mouth 
ritual. And as he does this, he is wearing a white linen garment. And then over that, this leopard skin. And you can see the head and you can see the claws. And there's even a gold version of a leopard head precisely for that garment in the Tomb of Tutankhamun. And the Sem priest will hold particular implements to the mouth of the coffin, to the mummy. And then that enables the deceased to eat, drink, and also uh, enjoy lovemaking in the afterlife. So this is a key ritual for enjoying the netherworld, to enjoying, you know, paradise for the ancient Egyptians. So that was a marker of, of priesthood, was the leopard skin. And that's actually one of the reasons why Nubia was so important, going back to, to Hekanefer and the Nubian prince, is that Nubia was where you acquired leopard skins, ostrich feathers, which were important for fans, uh, as well as the gold that made Egypt so rich. So these, what you might think of as luxury items, were considered essentials for ancient Egyptian religious practice. And the scented wax cones are an awesome feature of ancient Egyptian costume. They're almost always depicted in the banquet scenes. And you can imagine in the heat, everyone's consuming beer and wine. Um, they're enjoying music and various scantily clad musicians, normally only wearing jewelry, would be performing and going around serving the guests. And the myrrh that was within these scented uh, wax cones would melt over the wake during the course of the night as, you know, things heated up, you would smell better yet. And <laughs> <laughs> it's really neat that within the last 10 years, archaeologists at Amarna excavating a cemetery have discovered one of those actual wax cones in a tomb. So that's exciting. I haven't seen the final publication yet, but it's so cool how all of these things that we only see in representations, you never know when someone's going to find an actual example and confirm exactly how it works. That's amazing. I wonder what they did with their wigs once they got the wax in the wig. Did they stay? Did it stay? <laughs> now your wig just yeah. smells better, <laughs> I guess. I'd probably wash it. I mean, we have laundry lists, a title, laundry men in, in ancient Egypt. So they were very concerned about maintaining cleanliness. So it was probably you got dirty and then you washed it and then you got it all suited up for the next festival. Yeah, hygiene and ancient Egypt's really interesting because you really, when you compare it to Europe at the time, the emphasis was not the same, but the Egyptians really cared about their hygiene, correct? They did. We have tweezers, we have razors, we have all of the accoutrements that go along with maintaining personal appearance in addition to obviously the makeup, the incense, and mm -hmm. priests, for example, we know bathed every day. So it, they had, a, I think, a very different conception Mm -hmm. as you mentioned, between what constituted a sanitary life in ancient yeah. Egypt in comparison <laughs> to the the rest of of, uh, of Europe, say. Um, so we talked about this a little bit in conjunction with the priest's dress um, and funerary rites, um, but what role did clothing play um, um, for the actual deceased? We, there's around 5,000 artifacts in King Tut's tomb, for instance, and, and um, I believe many of these are jewelry and clothing. Absolutely. So we have wooden chests from the tomb of Tutankhamun that contained everything from his loincloths to his gloves, kilts, probably a shirt he wore as a child um, is all in his tomb. And it's not just the tomb of Tutankhamun. There was another tomb excavated by an Italian mission around the turn of the last century 
the tomb of Kha, which is now in the Egyptian Museum in Turin. It's the only museum in the world outside of Egypt dedicated entirely to Egyptian antiquities. And there were stacks of linen loincloths, clothing, bedsheets, everything. And what I think is most cool about that material is some of the loincloths have little laundry marks. So it was probably so that when you sent all of your clothes out to be laundered, you knew which ones were yours so Uh you would get them back. Properly. And that, that seems to be the best explanation of these little marks on the clothing. And which is really funny because this connects back to our Queen, Queen Alexandra, Alexandra episode, yeah. um, talking about the monograms the on monograms. her laundry as well. So I guess the process of doing royal laundry hasn't really changed, changed. all that much. <laughs> <laughs> Worldwide, indeed. Colleen, thank you so much for being here with us today. That's all the time we have. But we hope, dress listeners, that you take a moment to embrace your inner pharaoh next time you get dressed. Thank you so much. Thank you. Remember, you can find images to accompany each week's episode on Instagram at dressed underscore podcast. This is also our Twitter handle. You can find us on Facebook at dressed podcast without the underscore. And if you'd like to email us, you can do so at dressed at howstuffworks.com. Don't forget about our brand new merch store where you can get dressed approved t-shirts, mugs, notebooks, stickers, and super cute tote bags. Just go to www.tpublic.com forward slash dressed. And last but not least, thank you again to Dr. Colleen Darnell and also our producers at How Stuff Works, Holly Fry and Casey Pegram. Catch you next week. This episode of Dressed was recorded at Mouth Media Network Studio in New York, powered by Sennheiser. 